Hello and welcome to The Last Looks Podcast, a show where we catch up with talented hairstylists and makeup artists in the film and television industry. We'll pick their super creative brains and find out all the good stuff. Join me, your host, Jamie Lee, in finding out what's what in the hair and makeup departments around the world. And now, our feature presentation. Today on the Last Looks podcast, I'm speaking with makeup designer Valley O'Reilly. Valley has an incredibly impressive filmography. She won an Oscar for her work on Lemony Snicket's A Series of Unfortunate Events and then a BAFTA for Tim Burton's Alice in Wonderland. Valley shares the story of her beginnings as a makeup artist and how she found herself with a makeup brush in her hand. She shares some of her favourite projects that she has worked on throughout her career and all the wonderful people she has worked with and met along the way. Picture up. Last looks. Rolling. And action. Welcome to the Last Looks Podcast, Valley. Good morning, Jamie Lee. <laughs> Good morning. Hey, now I would like you to finish this sentence for me, okay? Sure. Once upon a time, there was a child named Valley, and when they grew up, they wanted to be... Probably a sculptor. A sculptor? Mm-hmm. That's pretty awesome. So how, as a child, did you kind of know that that was a thing? What kind of inspired you in that direction? Well, I was always interested in art. I used to, you know, draw all the time as a kid. And mm. I used to make my own, like, comic strips. And I used to make my own board games. And back then, kids used plaster scene. I used to make all sorts of different things. But then mm-hmm. they would just dry out and fall apart. You know, they weren't proper clay. Yeah. And my mother had a friend when I was about 13 that was showing me pictures of the sculpting class that she went to. Oh, cool. And so I, that sort of, I lit up and I said, wow, to my mom, I'd like to do something like that. And she's like, well, this is all adults. And I said, well, can I still come? And she said, well, no, it's adults. So anyway, my mother's friend being the type of person she was, she asked the sculpting teacher if it would be okay if I came to the class. So mm-hmm. the woman said yes. So I came. They, I guess they wanted to see it first. I came to sort of audit it. They wanted to see it first, you know, what type of a person I was, if I would be disruptive to the class or if mm. I would really be interested, if it was just, you know. So I came and then they gave me a bit of clay to play with while they were all sculpting from a live model. And I, The teacher said, wow, she could see that I was really into it. So they told me that I could come back. So I went uh, once a week after school. I would take the bus. It was in the evenings to a lot of the classes. And, you know, I just started sculpting then. And then I carried that on for years. And sometimes they would have them on the weekends. But it was something I really enjoyed, and I continued it through high school into university, and you know, was you know worked with this woman. Her name was Mae Marks, who was a sculpting teacher. And something obviously, it wasn't the most lucrative to have a career as it, but I really enjoyed it. But you know, I studied fine arts, art history. I got an art degree, and so to actually make money, I was leaning towards a job probably in art restoration or, you know, medical illustration, which is something they probably, you know, 
do now all by computer. But, uh, you know, back then in the late 70s, early 80s, people Mm. were still doing it with, you know, drawing the body parts and stuff. So that's sort of where I was leaning and thought maybe I could get a job working for a museum, that kind of thing. So I didn't really, I loved films and I loved movies, but I grew up in Canada. So that just, and I didn't have any family in the film business. So I, that just seemed like not a career option. Like, well, like there were no makeup schools and I didn't know anybody that worked in the film business. So it, you know, I sort of aspired to do something in the the art field, something that, you know, I was, you know, enjoyed and was good at. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like you were drawn to just anything artistic, just pretty much straight away. Yeah. I think a lot of times people, you know, have a tendency to, if they're, if they're naturally good at something, then they'll mm. put more energy into it, you know? Yeah. So, so how does a doing fine art, thinking about going in those possible directions, and then do you end up doing, like going and working for a museum or anything like that? Or does makeup kind of... After I finished art school, you know, I pretty much, like anybody that's 20 years old, you Mm. just (laughs) grab whatever jobs you can get, you know? So, you know, there was, you know, lists as long as my arms to get in. And they had sort of at some of the museums in Canada, they had somewhat of an apprenticeship program with certain people you could try to do for art restoration. But I mean, at any, you kind of just want to get in anywhere. And yeah. I, I applied to some places in New York, even though I didn't have my papers to work there but I thought you know I I was a very good student so I thought maybe scholastically they might Mm -hmm. figure out a way to find a spot for me or if I could fill some kind of you know area that they didn't have somebody that was as good as me you know back when you're that young you take all sorts of chances that you maybe wouldn't do as you get older so Mm -hmm. I worked in a pharmacy for a while as a job and I ended up selling cosmetics and whatever and working in the dispensary and So I was around makeup then, you know, people would ask me to do their makeup for stuff. I kind of think back and I think why, because I hardly ever wore any makeup. So I was going to ask, I was was going to be sitting there thinking, you know, well, I mean, a lot of times they, I mean, people would have Halloween parties and a lot of the times I would do my own makeup and it would be something, you know, I used to like changing myself into different characters. So, Mm. but, um, yeah, I don't know. Maybe because I worked in the in the makeup part of the pharmacy that they thought that I knew how to do makeup. Who knows? But at one point when I was asked to, you know, partake in a fashion show helping with makeup and, you know, I just did it for the money. It just said and I sort of threw together a little bit of a kit. I didn't really know what to get. Mm. And then one time I went over to visit my mother and she had a friend who this is a different friend whose boyfriend, she was talking to my mother, I could hear her telling her boyfriend was going to be doing this low budget film. Mm. So I asked her if I could work on it. And she said, Well, you know, you don't have any experience. I said, I'll do anything. You know, I kind of didn't want to go back into the pharmacy in the summer. I wanted like to try another job. And I said, you know, no matter what you pay, you know, I'll do it. So, I mean, I think the pay was $50 a week Mm -hmm. and 
it was like his movie for his, uh, I guess he was at university and he needed to do, to do the film for his, um, what do you call it, uh, master's in film or something. Okay. And it was for graduate movie. And so that's what that was. But they were able to get some kind of a grant to pay people. So that's where I sort of got a spark and thought that this was interesting. So that's sort of how I ended up thinking, well, you know, I bought a whole bunch of books Mm. uh, that whatever they had available, I guess it was Richard Corson's book on makeup, uh, just so I could read, you know, because they said to me, you could help with props. I said, okay, that's fine. And then it ended up switching that they said, Mm. you know, we don't have anybody to do makeup. So you're going to do makeup. And I was like, okay. And then I thought, well, I don't know how to do real makeup for a you know, a movie. So I bought these books and looked it up and then just kind of used common sense. Yeah. You know, I didn't really have a budget to buy mm-hmm. much. So I did have some stuff left over from working at the drugstore. So I used some of that and used mm-hmm. some of my mom's makeup and, and used some friends gave me some makeup and kind of put a little kit together. And I was able to sort of they had real actors in the movie. Uh, yeah. I never told them that I'd never done makeup before. I just sort of winged my way through it. Wow. But it gave me a taste of, okay, I like, I'd like to maybe work on a film. Yeah. So that's where that sort of came from. Oh, my goodness. Were you incredibly nervous or were you just like, I've got nothing to lose here. I'm just going to give it a go. Yeah, I wasn't nervous at all. I guess what I was nervous about was just like knowing what supplies to use for what. Right. You know, because first of all, I had no money of like I'm making $50 a week. Mm. And that basically covered me taking like metro and buses to get there. You know, it was just trying to figure out what to do. I think back, I mean, no, I just acted confident. I figured, you know, I needed to do sweat on people. So I like, you know, put water in a thing and sprayed it. I mean, those Richard Corson books were pretty good. I mean, even though they were for the theater. Uh, and then you just have to kind of use common sense, like, yeah. you know, which later in my career, even when I did low budget films, sometimes you're in a pickle and you just have to think, okay, well, they want this and I don't have this. What can I use? Yeah. You know, and just sort of improvise. So that's one thing I will say that, I think it made me a better makeup artist since I didn't have formal training by classes from other makeup artists, you Mm -hmm. know, that had schools. I kind of learned on the job. So my career started in the 80s doing extremely low budget films where I guess you have nothing to lose because if they're not paying you a lot of money, then, you know, they get what they get. But I always took the initiative to try to make it as professional as possible. And I always wanted to give them what they wanted. So if they wanted, you know, brains up against a wall, I would like grab, you know, ketchup and pirate's booty and mix it together in a cup and add water and just throw it up against the wall. You know, I just, uh, I would try to come up with whatever the director asked for, no matter how cheesy or bad the movie was, I would, you know, make it like it was multi-million dollar movie. So, and I, I actually like the problem solving part of filmmaking as well. You know, like the challenge, like when you sometimes had to make stunt people, match the the actors 
and especially if they were going to use them a lot and go fairly close. I always liked the challenge of trying to make them look as much like the person as I could. So Yeah, I think in general, you have to be up for a challenge in our line of work. And if you're not, then... Oh, look at even, <laughs> even now, like look at when our, the last job we did together, there was, you know, there was always, there's always something, no matter how many years you've been in the business and how many tools you have and Mm. how many things you watch there's always a challenge on every job like I'm always nervous you know even now on every job I start even if it's a commercial for one day Mm -hmm. I'm always nervous yeah you know a little bit I never I never feel like oh I got this yeah (laughs) I'm always thinking you know something could come up yeah, it's so true. So how when you when you did that very first job, how did you then figure out how to get the next one and the next one? I just started, I found through, I guess on somebody I knew, knew a guy that did sound mixing, an okay. older English guy. And I called him up and I went and, you know, I told him I was interested in getting into the film business. Could he tell me how? You know, you're really naive when you're young. So you just like, especially... And he's like, oh, okay, well, that's kind of a big one. So (laughs) I just uh, went and had tea with him and he found me amusing and he sort of took me under his wing to try to help me. So he gave me a bunch of names of people that had worked for the BBC and had worked for, you know, like some older makeup artist. And Mm -hmm. he said, just... Since you're young, you'll get away with this. Just keep bugging these people. Yeah. So (laughs) that's what I did. I just periodically, uh, you know, I was still going to school Mm -hmm. and periodically would call them up and say, just checking in to see if there's any kind of a place that I can come and watch you work, wash your brushes, just, you know, do anything. Yeah. Checking in, just I just bugged them and bugged them and bugged them. Mm-hmm. So finally one guy, his name was Bill Morgan, he mm-hmm. finally was like he was an older British guy. He finally just was like, All right. <laughs> and he let me, you know, come with them. And now we were shooting outside in the winter and I wasn't really prepared for that because unless you you know, I grew up in places where there was a climate. It wasn't like California, but you never stand outside all day. You go for where you have to go and you yeah. go in, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I really wasn't prepared for being outside in, you know, January or whenever it was. But yeah, I bugged him and he let me, uh, he actually let me do a lot. You know, I did the hands of the actor and he helped me put together a little kit with fishing tackle box. And, you know, then he had me sculpt a bunch of stuff for him because he did a bit of prosthetics, I guess. Mm -hmm. And he pay me, you know, $50 to sculpt any, he would show me a picture and tell me to sculpt it. And then he probably charged the company like, you know, five grand (laughs) or whatever, (laughs) but I didn't care. I mean, a lot of it was so long ago. I sit there and think, I'm not sure the chronological order of everything, how it all worked, but mm-hmm. I ended up with a lot of, you know, persistence, you know, and and interest getting, you know, getting a career and just all open to meeting people and open to asking people 
do you have a job for me? You know, is there something, can I help this person? Do you know somebody that is doing anything? You know, and then I, when I moved to California, I met, I was introduced through somebody I met working on a commercial mm-hmm. to a hairdresser, Anna Lenta, who her people call her Medusa. And mm-hmm. this man, Jack, who was a first AD, who's passed away. He said, oh, I have a friend that I think you might like, and she works all the time in LA and on movies. So I was like, great. So he set it up for me to meet her for you know lunch. And then she told me she was doing a low budget film called Savage Streets. Mm-hmm. And uh, they didn't have makeup. Do, do I think I could handle working on something like that? I said, sure. So you know, I ended up working on that in L.A. I think they they didn't pay us our last two weeks of working. It was like one of those really sleazy production companies. But right. on that job, I made a lot of contacts. Yeah. Even though, and it was low, low, low budget. It was non-union and everything. But I did meet some people. And then I, you know, had a good working relationship with her. And then we went on to do so many movies together. Like after that, we did, that was a pretty sort of lowbrow movie, but we went on to do some interesting kind of non-union movies. At that point, the union was really hard to get into. Mm. In my opinion, in the beginning, it was more of a nepotistic situation where most of the people in IATSE, a lot of them were related to each other. It was just like the grips were all from one family and then their cousins and then the makeup, everybody was sort of related. And then sometimes they might have a neighbor that wanted to do makeup and hair and they would sort of help them get in the union. But it was it was hard to sort of get in. There were yeah. people that had jobs in the studio system and and for makeup, it was kind of you know, before my time, it was kind of a male-dominated field. So mm-hmm. there weren't that many women. And there weren't that many people in 706, uh, I don't think. There were, not like there is now. Yeah. So, and it was very difficult to get in in the 80s. So since I worked all the time, I didn't really care. Yeah. You know, I thought, well, I'm working on decent movies. I mean, yeah. I've worked with a lot of famous directors on, and they were non-union productions. That's awesome that there was enough going on to kind oh, of... Oh, there was so much non-union stuff. Yeah. There were, Medusa and I worked non-stop. I mean, we turned down so many jobs. Wow. I mean, there was so much work, but they were with like really great directors like Nicholas Rogue. We did tons of movies with him. We did tons of movies with John Schlesinger. We worked with Martin Scorsese. We worked with Penelope Spiris. We worked with on and on list of different people that were sort of more arty type films. Yeah. The guy that interviewed me for from some sort of cult film website, he was interested in like a lot of the sort of B type movies I did in the in the eighties and some of the weird music videos I did. Yeah. Like, that there's cult followings for those type of movies. Wow. So I thought, boy, I didn't realize anybody ever saw some of the films that he was <laughs> asking me about. So. And you certainly, when you're working on it, don't think that it's going to end up with a cult following. Like, you have no idea at the time. No, like this film Cherry 2000. Like, it was really a bizarre movie. And the studio had a lot to do with the look of it, which I didn't really agree with in the beginning because they, you know, the woman was supposed to be a tracker, like a 
you know, tracking criminals in the desert and they wanted her to look like Tawny Katane in the White Snake videos. Like, you know, <laughs> you know, she should look more like an androgynous type person, you know, in my opinion. Like they, it, it, there was a lot of things that were like directed by studios just to make a movie sell rather than what made sense in the movie. Which is making like everyone that. look like they're in a music video or something. Yeah, actually right. in the <laughs> 80s a lot of things were influenced by music videos because the music MTV mm, world huge. was so uh, popular mm. and so new. Yeah. And a lot of things were influenced by that. That's very cool. Do you remember what your first job was once you got into the union? Mm. Uh, yeah, Mambo Kings. Okay. That movie got me into the union, actually because of Michael Ballhaus, the cinematographer who I'd worked with on many movies. Hmm. They weren't happy with the makeup. Somebody else had been hired for that movie. And the director, Arnie Glimpshire, who owned the Pace Gallery, it was his first movie. And they were doing makeup tests and they weren't really happy with how they looked. And so Michael Ballhaus told him that he should use me. Well, I wasn't in the the union then. So they had to go through, you know, and I recommended Medusa to do the hair on that. And they had to go through a lot of rigmarole to get us on the movie. But luckily, I had worked with Antonio Banderas before, not on a movie, but on some little small thing that was done for Spain with Pedro Moldovar. So they could kind of say that I had worked with him before and he was one of the leads in it. So they were able to sort of put that down as a reason to have us get on the movie. I don't know what they did to get us on it, but we ended up getting on it. And we both, Medusa and I had, you know, done like, you know, 25, 30 department head movies before. So yeah. it wasn't like at the and, and sizable movies. Hmm. So that was the first union movie that I did. Did you notice much of a difference or did it just feel the same as? It pretty much felt the same. I always felt that like when I did movies for people like John Schlesinger or Nicholas Rogue, he always hired like incredible DPs mm-hmm. and they hired very professional costume designers. And I, I pretty much felt that everything seemed the same. Yeah. I guess you were more looked after as far as your wages mm-hmm. and, you know, you would get a pension and you would, you know, be getting health insurance and things like that yeah. was a big advantage of being in the union. Mm-hmm. Throughout your career, like your filmography is, I mean, it's huge and you've done so many different types of projects, such a wide range. What are some standout jobs for you? What are some of your faves? Well, I guess I can start from like the one of the first movies I did was After Hours, and that was such a an incredible script. Mm-hmm. And we actually shot the ending three different times because they couldn't make up their minds, oh, wow. <laughs> you know, what they wanted. If they wanted, you know, Griffin Dunn's character to go off into the horizon inside this, you know, paper mache sculpture, mm. or if they wanted to see him get back home or, you know, so they, they, you know, they wanted to test it with the audiences. So, um, but it was a very well received movie. It was great to work with someone like Martin Scorsese and Rita Gryak was the costume designer. She was really talented. Griffin Dunn was the leading actor. He was 
hilarious. And, you know, we did 15 weeks of night shooting in Manhattan. Wow. And uh, it was a lot of fun. It was easier to do those 15 weeks of night shooting because, you know, we're like 23, 24 years old. Mm-hmm. You can stay up all night. But also doing it consecutively, you know, it's just, it's when you start early in the morning on a Monday and then by Friday you're doing a night it, that really messes with. Your oh yeah. Body yeah. No, clock. it was, cons- it was, yeah. it was consecutively. And the only hard part was on the weekends, mm. all your friends, you know, are not going to stay up all night with you. So <laughs> no, when you yeah. still- Back in New York in those days, they had all those nightclubs and they had like Odeon, that restaurant that would stay open all night. And they had, you know, Area and Danceteria and all these different sort of nightclubs. And that's mm-hmm. what we would do, even though it wasn't really my thing. There was nothing else to do because yeah. nothing else was open all night. So yeah. we, used to, we used to all go and stay up as late as we could to just keep on that schedule. Yeah. But it, it, the, the whole movie was all shot. It was all supposed to take place in one night. Yeah. So that was challenging continuity with whiskers and stuff like that. Because mm-hmm. progressively he had to have his whiskers um, start off clean shaven. And then, you know, by the end of it, have beard growth of 24 hours. Wow. So for my one of my first jobs, that was a challenge, you know, keeping continuity, Polaroiding that, keeping, and they had to have it with the hair too. He, you know, his, he got progressively distressed and his, also the clothes had to get progressively distressed. Yeah. And we didn't shoot in order. Right. No, of course not. <laughs> so, yeah, of course not. They tried to do it a little bit, but it was hard because of actor availability. So. Yeah. That was an interesting project. You know, it was right around the time when there was a big punk movement in New York. It was fun. Mm -hmm. It's when New York was really fabulous back, you know, back in the early 80s. You couldn't have been in a better place. It was just a fun time to be young and be in New York City and to be working with Martin Scorsese. Yeah. On a great, really artsy film. I felt very lucky. Starting off my career, that was kind of like a, a good sort of bump. And, you know, and it not every not every situation is like that. Mm-hmm. Another movie that I did after that that I loved working on was The Bodyguard. Mm-hmm. I was a personal to Whitney Houston on that project, and that was really really great to get to work with her. And to, you know, she sang Happy Birthday to her assistant one day just in a room and Mm. with no you know nothing and it was just people the grips got teary-eyed I mean she had the most incredible voice yeah and she was a you know pleasure to work with it was great having a lot she did obviously in the movie there were a lot of musical numbers so Mm -hmm. we had a lot of music while we were working the same with Mambo Kings the director while we were doing that movie had mambo, cha-cha, salsa music playing all day. Like Tito Puente, Celia Cruz, all that kind of music we had all day while we were working. And it really made an incredible work environment. Yeah. Like people just seem to be happier and do a better job with music playing all the time. Yeah, it's true. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, and The Bodyguard, it did amazingly well. Oh, yeah, it did. It, did it was huge. well received. And also the, the music that they, the songs they did are mm. still really popular to this day. Yeah. Where did you guys shoot that? That was all shot in Los Angeles. Okay. Uh, we went to Lake Tahoe for a week, I think. Mm-hmm. And we went to, to Miami for a week. 
or two weeks to the old Fontainebleau Hotel just before they renovated it. But basically, it was quite a long shoot. That's awesome. So then after that, another favorite was the Joy Luck Club. Mm -hmm. And we shot that in San Francisco. And that spanned through, it was four mothers and four daughters and their history and their lives from the turn of the century to about 1993 or four. Wow. And so that was a lot of different, a lot of research to do because it had to be really authentic for like weddings and funerals and a lot of the different looks. That was one of them. And we went to China for a month and a half. And that was in the early 90s. So it was like going back into a time machine. It's not like how China is now. Wow. So we were in little villages that had never seen Americans before or any kind of Caucasian people. So. Did you have your long blonde hair at that point? Oh, yeah. Oh, my goodness. Wow. Yeah, you would have stood out like a sore thumb. <laughs> well, and the script supervisor was six foot one. Oh, and wow. when we walked out of the hotel one day, all of a sudden it was silent. All this traffic stopped and everybody looked at us. I said to her, what are they looking at? She's like, I hate to tell you, but they're looking at us. <laughs> I said, are you serious? All these people? He said, yeah. Everybody stopped. It was just like if you freeze the frame of a, of a film that you're watching. Yeah. And they all looked at us like they'd never, you know, like we were aliens from another planet. Wow. Yeah. And then when we went, walked down the street to go shopping, like I'll, I could feel like people's breath. That's how close they, they would get to you back then. Mm. I could feel like heat by my face and I turn around, it would be somebody, but in a very non-aggressive way, just curious. curious like we yeah. were aliens from another planet. Mm. We went into a shop. If I was looking at something and all of a sudden I would feel like so much heat behind me and I turn around and there'd be like, 10 people piled up looking over my shoulder to look at what I was looking at. Mm -hmm. They were so curious about what the foreigner was interested in. Wow. So it was, it, I was like, I just laughed my head off the yeah. whole time. What I an was experience. Because it was so different, like having people looking at you like, how we look at animals in a zoo mm, mm. and but they were really kind and you know it, it was an incredible experience one that's sort of like a life-changing experience actually yeah but working on the film was very hard because it, uh, terry Bellel did the hair mm -hmm. and we each had an, one assistant but it was like huge amounts of people. And there were some days where we were allowed to have extra help, but very rare because it wasn't a big budgeted film. Yeah. So. And you're doing all these periods as well. Oh yeah. We did all, like, we basically, sometimes there would be nobody watching the set for about half an hour because we'd be doing, you know, the director was very specific. Mm. Wayne Wang, he was, mm. he was lovely, but he was really specific. So we'd be testing some of the people in the trailer, getting them ready for what we were going to shoot the next day. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes it'd be like the girl that was working with me would be on the set, you know, watching tons of people. Wow. You know, that's just the way it was. We didn't have a lot of help. Mm -hmm. You know, and most mornings we had to do all four mothers, all four daughters oh almost every day. Wow. Just two of us. 
Mm-hmm. And then there would be maybe another four or five cast members. We did that every single day, but they never waited on us. So they had a great production designer, Don Burt, and then Amir Mokri, my friend, was the, we had worked together before, but he was the uh, cinematographer on the film and he made everybody look incredible. So, so that, awesome. it was a really, we had a lot of laughs. We did a lot of improvising you know, because we didn't have a lot of, you know, Terry didn't have a lot of wigs. There was Mm. one actor where we had to do a flashback and he and I laid a comb over hair by hair. The guy was, had a receding hairline. So we actually added hair, hair by hair across his head. Mm. That took a few hours, but you know, we didn't have a budget for anything. So but you got it done. Yeah, we got it done and it looked good. That's awesome. You know, and I used those Mark Trainer lifts because I had to age everybody. Mm. So I used the Mark Trainer lifts on all the women for when they were younger. Yeah. And then I taped their necks. And then I then we did some working with the cinematographer for the aging. I think it came out pretty good. I mean, it's pretty amazing because it's, it's like, you know, you're under crude. It's just, it's just you and maybe one other. And I'm thinking, oh, well, maybe she was keeping the makeup super simple. But now you're telling me that you're using lifts and taping necks. And that's amazing. Oh, yeah. No, we, yeah. we had to do the, all those women work together in one scene when we had to make them all young. Yeah. And then it wasn't just them. They were younger. So were their husbands. Wow. So were some other people. So we had to like try to get everyone to look as young as possible. And Mm -hmm. it helped having good lighting. Yeah. And so were their daughters. I mean, some were recast for the younger and some weren't. Right. And so, you know, we'd end up doing fringes and like sometimes with the clothing and the hairstyle. And yeah, I mean, we we had to really sort of think fast and do what we could, you know, but it was a challenge that was fulfilling. Yeah. So I think at the end of the day, I mean, Terry put highlights in all the girls because they all had very black hair. Mm -hmm. So he put hair by hair highlights in their hair. So on film, it didn't look like helmets. So that was a lot of work to do. Wow. And there were just certain things like I put individual lashes on the girls one day Mm -hmm. uh, for one of the party scenes. Well, that was the kiss of death for me. (laughs) Then they were like, oh, my God, I want these. Now they they kept like bugging me and bugging me. You know, can can we just have them for this scene? Nobody will notice. I was like, okay. (laughs) I said, by the end, you guys are going to have me putting full lashes all the way across yeah (laughs) so but we all had a lot of laughs and it was you know the beginning of some big careers for a lot of people that's very cool have you watched it recently I actually did I watched it while you and I were in Atlanta Mm. I watched it on I think it was on like Netflix or something or maybe it showed up on my TV. I can't remember, but because I was working with Amir, I thought, you know, I'm just going to watch this again and see if I still like what I did. Yeah. You know, sometimes I look at some makeup and movies that when I was younger, I would look at how some actress had her makeup and I think, Oh, I wish my hair was like that. Or I wish I knew how to do my makeup like that. And I Mm -hmm. look now and I think, Oh my goodness, that was so ugly. Why did I think that was great? So I just wondered if I would think that about my own work 
looking back at Joy Luck Club, like if I would have thought, oh, I should have done this different or that different. And that was one of the movies I, I was happy with, that I didn't tear it apart and go, well, I should have done this, should have done that. I was actually pleased with what choices that we made, considering the time and everything, you know, because in the 90s, that was sort of like the, you know, the end of the shoulder pads. Mm-hmm. And you know, the clothes were not the greatest. It was sort of remnants of the late 80s and 90s. And some of the hairdos were really weird. People were into scrunchies and stuff. So, like now, <laughs> yeah. So coming back, baby. <laughs> oh, is it really? You won't catch me in one of those. No, I'm not a scrunchie. Yeah, the either. halter top <laughs> scrunchies. You know, giant shoulder pads and t-shirts, leggings. <laughs> so, um, I can kiss it goodbye. Yeah, and then <laughs> I did a film that was a pretty gross script, mm-hmm. uh, just because it was too violent for my liking. But I was supposed to start on Mars Attacks, and it got pushed. So I got offered this other job, The Crow, City of Angels. It was quite a large undertaking. Mm-hmm. So I decided, since it was also not a big budgeted film, that instead of having a key working with me that I would see if I could find somebody else to co-department head it with me Yeah, because I needed somebody that knew how to do a lot of makeup as well. Like I needed somebody that had run their own shows so that way we could just split the work down the middle because there was just so much work to do. Yeah. So many tattoos and then everybody had stunt doubles and their doubles had to look like them. And every night we had just so much to do. So I'd asked John Blake to co-department head it with me. Mm-hmm. And I look back now, they actually made a book of the makeups and everything. I look back now because it was, you know, all night shooting in L.A. And I have to sit there and I'm still very happy with the makeup that we did. Mm-hmm. And Candy Neal did the hair and she did a great job and braiding and adding little skulls into the hair and everything. It was really artistic. Great That's costume cool. designer. Alex McDowell was the production designer. The film, and the, uh, I guess his name was Jean-Yves Escoffier was the cinematographer. He's no longer with us, but the film looked amazing. Mm. Would you want to watch it? No. <laughs> but visually, it was great. Yeah. And, you know, we we did really good work on it. I think. Because you guys were doing, it's like a lot of tattooing and stuff like that, right? Yeah, we did a lot of tattooing. This is before those Tinsley tattoos, before the easier way of doing tattoos, mm. which are, you know, easier being the, you know, time efficient. Yeah. So, I mean, Mia Kirshner, the actress, I had to do these giant angel wings on her back and I brought in a pillow from home to have her lean on it. Mm. And then I would, you know, I think Fred Blau made the stencil. We had it, I drew it out and then had an artist actually draw it so that it was in the right scale uh, on a computer so I could print it out and then stencil it on her back and then paint it in every night. So then, you know, we would spray it and then I would just beg her not to take a shower. (laughs) I said, please don't take a shower every night or at least try to save your back. Yeah. That way we don't have to start from scratch. Face the the shower, keep your back out. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You know, it was just, well, it was was hard because we were all working all night and we're Mm. working downtown LA with smoke and in some really, you know, this is the 90s. So it it looked different down there. And yeah, 
uh, there was a lot of really old warehouses, dusty, dirty, rat-infested places because they needed that look. Mm. And, you know, the first thing somebody would want to do would be jump in the shower when they got home. So, you know, I had to just like beg her. But she was <laughs> covered in tattoos. I drew a lot of them by hand. Wow. I mean, every single actor had tattoos on them. And wow. um, like I said, and then we had to do their stunt doubles. The guy, Vincent Perez, that played the crow, he had two stunt doubles because he'd had one for like swinging on things and mm. one that was a specialist on certain type of motorcycles. So right. we had to do the makeup. And then Iggy Pop had two crows fighting on his chest. And then his stunt double, we'd have to put that on. And then he had a motorcycle stunt double, too. And then so it was a lot of work. So a lot of times if we were allowed to hire somebody, we would just have somebody come in to watch the set while John and I just were in the trailer, just getting everybody ready. plowing through everybody. (laughs) So, you know, that's why, like, you know, at this point in my career, when I went from those kind of shows where I did Mm. everybody for 25 years Mm. to just doing one person Mm. I sort of feel like which isn't easy either you know but people seem to think it is Mm. I look back and I think how did we get everybody done because now on movies most of them are quite heavily staffed Mm. you know like if you do a movie the size of the crow city of angels now you would have a department you would have quite a few people but you know COVID aside Mm. you would have quite a sizable department yeah I mean especially with all the stunts and all the tattooing and yeah absolutely and then they'd still be hassling you about why is it taking so long yeah exactly constantly why is it taking so long so you know on on joy luck club for some reason i I don't know like i look back when like watching the amount of work and i just think how do we pull it off Mm. most of the movies i did in the early part of my career were not heavily crewed in our department i did in other movies that i well mars attacks i loved working on that though that had you know we had a lot of people to help on that that's and, cool is that the first time you worked with tim burton uh was that the first no i worked out with him on some videos i did some videos for ed wood and i did a bunch of music video music type video things with tim burton so oh, okay, i knew cool. tim before i did mars attacks but yeah i really enjoyed working with him yeah i mean and mars attacks i mean oh, it's such a fun film to watch so i would hope that it was fun to work on <laughs> Yeah, well, we traveled all over the United States on that movie. Oh, that's cool. I mean, it was all supposed to be done in L.A., and then all of a sudden they're like, oh, we're going to Kansas. Oh, we're (laughs) going to Vegas. You know, well, we're going to, I can't remember. We went to a lot of different places. Mm -hmm. Oh, we went to Flagstaff, Arizona. Yeah, we went to places that they needed it to get certain type of geography for the aliens yeah that's very cool i mean alice in wonderland was also a a challenging job and fulfilling i think that people really liked that and that was sort of iconic people liked the different looks that we did it was mimicked a lot for halloween yeah i mean i was excited for it to like to see that it had been made and to see it when it came out because that was one of my childhood stories that i loved yeah, and Tim so, has a thing with, he loves, you know, everything always, somebody always has blue eyeshadow, like in Mars Attacks, the Martian girl, like he has a certain, there's a certain kind of 
look that carries through into a lot of his movies. Mm-hmm. Again, Mars Attacks, for my sort of design theme, I modeled everything off of 60s TV shows in the U.S., like Gilligan's Island. And uh, so I you know, made Annette Benning kind of look like Ginger from Gilligan's Island. So I kind of used that as the theme. And, you know, Tim and I are like the same age. So I sort of talk to him about that's what I was going to do for the looks of a lot of the characters. Yeah. And he, he loved that. And then in Alice in Wonderland, he had specific research that he wanted us to use as our inspiration for designing the characters. Okay. So that's such a cool way to, for him to approach it. Like, so that there's still ideas and designs and everything coming from you guys directly, but he's just kind of showing you the way and saying, I'm I'm in this realm, but pick and pull from, from this stuff instead of him just going, this is exactly what I want. Can you do it, please? Yeah. Well, he, uh, you know, he has specific things that he wants the feeling of it to be there, but mm-hmm. then he lets you sort of take it from there. Like with Helena Bonham Carter, he wanted her to have the influence of Queen Elizabeth, you know, Elizabeth with the high receding forehead mm-hmm. and Betty Davis's version of it with the sort of orangey hair. Yeah. So he wanted that feeling to come across in the, that sternness of that version of Elizabeth. Yeah. And then with um, the character that played the knave, Crispin Glover, he used Kirk Douglas from the Viking with the big scar across his face. He wanted him to have a scar like that. Yeah. And so he had some specifics like that. And then basically we did the tests. I would have the actors come in and do a lot of different tests on them. And the still photographer would come and take pictures. Hmm. And I would try different looks and then take all the photos into Tim. And he would circle what he liked from each picture. Yeah. And that's how we came up with the looks. Wow. So he could sit and actually visualize and see and say, well, I like the eyes from this, but I like the lips from this and I like the skin color from this. So, you know, we'd sort of collaborated that way. And then put that puzzle together. Put the puzzle together. Yeah. That's awesome. I mean, he has such a, his... Yeah. It is a very stylized look. Yeah, yeah. Like you can always tell a Tim Burton movie. Absolutely. Without even seeing that he's been the director. If you just sort of run about 10 minutes of film and have anybody watch, they can tell <laughs> that he directed it. Yeah, it's so true. And it was, I mean, it was great to watch. And great because I was a Tim Burton fan anyway. So to be a fan of the um, Alice in Wonderland and then have him do it, it was just like, oh, this is, that was very cool. Yeah. And the actors were all really nice. Well, that's what you want. So, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was a lot of work. Yeah. But, you know, it paid off. Well, I think that's kind of your MO, it sounds like. <laughs> You well, do. A, lot, a of lot of work, yeah. <laughs> you just get in there and and well, yeah, get I never it and do those, it. Those courtroom drama movies <laughs> where there's very little makeup on people. No, so it's always was me running around with the many bags, yeah, touching people up. So <laughs> in Alice in Wonderland, I I made stencils because on the Queen of Hearts, her eyebrows had to be. In the beginning, I was just hand drawing them every day, and I thought, okay, I'm going to come in tired, and then one day I'm not going to be able to match them. Yeah. So I decided once I drew them on one morning, I just got 
you know, a stencil form and drew it on the form. And then I just made a stencil. So that way I could line it up, you know, some mornings and just do this, do the stencil in of, of the shape that I had done. The same with the lips, yeah. with the heart after hand drawing it so many times. Yeah. I'm going to do a little stencil. Yeah. I mean, you can so easily just end up all over the place. Couldn't you? Well, yeah, one day you could come in and just not be able to get the little humps on the heart exactly the same. You know, we were doing like long days sometimes. It's just uh, because those people as well had tons of stunt doubles and everything. So Mm -hmm. it it just like, I just thought that was something that was just going to make things go a bit faster. And, you know, and she was already in the chair a long time having the appliances put on. And then, you know, we had to kind of, they had to get her hair slicked down. And there was, you know, it was like a two and a half hour makeup with makeup and hair. Yeah. So. Well, the stencils would have made it go a little faster. Huh? Yeah, exactly. I've made my own stencils for things that I've had to repeat a lot mm-hmm. from the beginning of my career. Because that just came from my art background. Yeah. You know, so I just, if I saw that I was going to have to do something a lot, I would make a stencil. Even, you know, before they made molds for scars and things. Mm-hmm. I would make a stencil of the shape of a scarf. I had to repeat it on somebody back in the 80s. It's just cheap and easy way to kind of just stay on top of your continuity and speed things up. And I'm better, to tell you the truth, doing things out of the kit than Mm -hmm. I am with buying pre-made stuff and gluing it on. Even when I've had people make things for me, sometimes I'm just better with getting the latex or getting the scar material or getting the whatever Mm -hmm. and just sort of, mixing blood and dirt and whatever I need to mix to get it the way I visually think it looks right and doing it right on the person rather than dealing with edges from things you know it just it just depends on what it is and what I'm doing but I I seem to work faster doing things out of the kit well it's probably just the that well just because that's I spent years doing that so I can just do it faster that's very cool now, you have been, as on top of doing all of that and much more, then you've gone into being a personal for quite a few actors as well. So how did that transition kind of come along? Back in the 80s, I w- was a personal for Leslie Ann Warren on quite a few TV movie kind of things. Okay. And I think that it was just because... She had asked for it, mm. that, to have a personal, and then she asked me to do it. So I don't know the reasoning why they let her do it. Oh, you don't need to question that, I don't think. <laughs> Just go with the flow and go, okay, that sounds great. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Who knows? I, mm. I don't know. She, they let her do it, so so I, I took that position. And then after I did Pacific Heights, Melanie Griffith was going to England to do a movie mm. called Shining Through. And she asked to have her own makeup and hair people. So that's when I went to England. That was 1990. Okay. And I went there and just was a personal to her. Then after that, I got, I'd been a personal to her a few times, but then I, you know, was asked to be a personal for Emma Thompson and for people at different times. So yeah, I mean, I, I had a little nosy through your IMDb and it's, yeah, Emma Thompson, Annette Benning, Melanie Griffith, as you said, Kim Basinger. Kim Basinger. Yeah. yeah, for a lot of people, Jessica Alba. I did like a, a lot of, a lot of different people, Julia Louis-Dreyfus. So my IMDb 
I went on, I've gone on IMDb three times now, <laughs> correcting it. And they, a, a lot of my credits are wrong because they have me as a key. That's what they used to call the department head. Yeah. They kind they of make the update, don't they? And they used to call, uh, or just makeup. Mm-hmm. They never called it department head. So, you know, I wrote to them and I told them key now is usually the, the second makeup artist or the assistant department head, but I was the department head on all these movies. Can you please change it? So I, it doesn't seem like they're going to do it. So (laughs) one day lady, we can only hope. Yeah. (laughs) Patience. (laughs) Yeah. But I was a personal to get a lot of women and men, Mm -hmm. you know, for many years. Yeah. I worked with Dustin Hoffman for about 12 years. Yeah. It's very cool. Warren Beatty. I, was personal to him and department hitting the movie. So that was a challenge. Yeah. And it bending on quite a few projects, Leslie Mann. I would have to look at my IMDb to remember all the different people. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, there's a good couple of handfuls there. You've, you've been a busy, right. busy lady. Now, Mini Driver, uh, but uh, Julia Louis-Dreyfus was real. I did, I did a TV series with her uh-huh. and did tons of photo shoots and commercials and everything. She was probably one of the most fun people I ever worked with in my whole career. It's like actually it was hard to do her makeup without laughing. I just said, said to her, don't talk to me now while I'm doing it because we both start crying. We'd be laughing so hard. She was just a delight. Yeah. That's you always know, so awesome that. to hear because she is so wonderful to watch on screen. So She's just as wonderful in real life. Yeah, that's she really cool. is. She's smart. She's, you know involved in so many different great things with the environment and mm. politically and she's a kind person and but she's hilarious oh, she so really cool. isn't she's such a, just such a talent but I mean I've been lucky like most of the people I've worked with Annette Benning I've worked with a lot and she's really a, a good actress and very professional and mm-hmm. you know makes some interesting choices film-wise like a lot of the Smaller movies she does are really fabulous, like The Kids Are All Right. I did a bunch of those tier indie movies with her, and they were all, you know, my paycheck wasn't very big, but the quality of the work was excellent. Yeah, that's awesome. So when you are being a personal, what do you think is important to remember just in that position? Well, it's important when you're a personal for whatever happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's um that's a good thing to remember. <laughs> yeah, you know, I just I just put that down to try to, for for humor. Yeah. But basically, you're also a reflection of that person. So mm-hmm. you know you have to behave properly. You have to you know look after that person. Uh, you're responsible for collaborating with them on the look. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, your timing to be accurate, getting them to the set, looking after them on set, their continuity, and, you know, just being as professional as possible. Yeah. I mean, you still have to basically break down the script and break down. It's just you're just doing it for one character as opposed to, you know, a hundred characters. Yeah. It's almost, I find my brain automatically goes into thinking about the entire ensemble of cast and background and everything. And I have to keep reminding myself, no, no, it's just the one character. It's just the one character. Right, <laughs> Stop right. thinking about everything else. <laughs> so yeah. it's a nice little reprieve um, for a moment. 
But, you know, people think that, oh, it's easy to work as a personal. It's not really. It's because you're, you're actually, it's, it's actually more intense because, mm. you know, you can't really leave to go make a phone call. You, you know, you nobody to cover you on set. But a lot of the times when you are a personal to somebody, usually they're number one, two or three on the call sheet. So they're a, pretty busy, an important part, part of the story. Mm. So it's really important that that they equal up to everybody else in the film that they, you know, look as incredible. Mm-hmm. It's not as easy as people think. And you're also you're not spread out with a bunch of people like you are when you're department heading, you're spending like 30 minutes with each person or 45 with each person when you're a personal you're spending you know 14 hours a day with this them and you yeah so you have to be able to give each other space and boundaries when you're working yeah because it's a little more intense when you're head of department you can somewhat design the whole look of the film with input from the director costume designer producers and, you know, you're responsible for everyone you hire mm-hmm. to follow through the look of the film. You're responsible for everybody getting their actors ready for the set on time. Yeah. You know, you're responsible for everybody following the rules <laughs> of set protocol. You're mm-hmm. responsible for the budget. You're responsible for continuity, the supplies and everything. So there's quite a lot when you're a head of department, but hopefully you're lucky to be able to get a great assistant department head that can take some of the responsibility off of you and you can sort of divvy it up a little bit. Yeah. But ultimately it all comes back on you. Yeah. At the end of the day. Yeah. <laughs> so I was going to ask you what, has been the most challenging project you've worked on so far? And it can be anything from a location to a whole project to just even one makeup application that you found extremely challenging. Well, working in China was very challenging. Mm -hmm. Like in mainland China in 1992, uh, that was, it was freezing. It was absolutely freezing cold and no toilets. I actually made the producer fly over a camping toilet. He thought I was being a real diva. I said, look at there, where we're going in Guilin, there's no bushes to go behind to go to the loo. And I've been told that it's really primitive there. And so guess what? When we were in mainland China and people had to go to the bathroom, who was the first person that wanted to use my toilet? (laughs) Him, because it was totally flat and... Um, You're like five so bucks a go. That's what I said to him. There's, I said, you know what? There's a charge now because I bought sheets from the hotel and I pinned it around inside the makeup bus mm. and then brought, I packed garbage bags in my suitcase because I, I knew we were going to be in some remote places. Yeah. And, we're, and also it's like really cold out. So you're in, you're not in little, you know, jean jackets. Yeah. You're in down layers and layers. And, in layers and layers. So, um, so that was kind of, that was challenging, but at the same time, hilarious. There were a lot of people from Hong Kong and mainland China working on the movie. Well, obviously Hong Kong was part of, wasn't part of China back then. Mm. So the people were a lot more sophisticated. So at the end we had like a raffle between the costume and and makeup department because everybody wanted the toilet. <laughs> you know, they they run into this situation all the time when they're on location. Yeah. You know, so we sort of uh, did that. And at the at the end of the job, I gave 
all my assistants, when I found out they were getting paid the equivalent to $15 a day for mm. all the work they were doing, mm. um, you know, in Chinese money would be the equivalent to American $15. Yeah. I gave them each $100 in a Chinese good luck envelope. Yeah. And then I found out that we could have all gone to prison afterwards because they're not allowed you weren't allowed to use American money. It's like they had oh. to change it on the black market. Oh. then. So I shouldn't have given them American money because right. that was a real like no, no. Yeah. And they shouldn't have accepted it because if they got caught trying to change it and they said it was me, Uh-oh. you know, I could still be in China today. Yeah. So it was, you know, that was just trying to be nice, but being stupid at the same time. But, yeah, so that was one of the most challenging locations mm-hmm. and challenging jobs, I would say, Alice in Wonderland, due to all the new technology at that point mm-hmm. was blue screen and green screen, but it was wall, ceiling, floor. So it did a number on your eyes. So when we were on set and had to touch people up, you could hardly see. Like we, a lot of times we had to wear special glasses. Yeah. That had sort of rose lenses. And a lot of the times I would just say, I'm sorry, I have to touch them up back in the trailer. I just just can't couldn't see from all the reflection of the green. And apparently, you know, Tim said that it affected light eyed people more. Like if you had light blue eyes or light green eyes, because it would absorb the blue or green screen. So that part working in all that was a little challenging. Absolutely. And it is, I mean, I, I have a horrible dislike for the green color. Like if I see it outside of work, I'm just like, Ugh, why would you have something that color? Yeah, I know what you <laughs> Such mean. Such a horrible shade of green. The blue is much easier to deal with. Um, yeah, well, we had that green and it was, they had it tarp on the ceiling, on the walls, on the floor. Yeah. And then, and then the lights on it. And it's and just... then all the light, like tons of lights. Mm. And then they had the whole stage was like a big circle. It, it, it looked so science fiction because there was a big circle of computers everywhere. Wow. Those computers were giving off like lights as well, like yeah. different kinds of neon-y kind of lights. So yeah, it did a number on my eyes. I gotta say, it was it was really hard to uh, you know focus on stuff. So yeah, quite draining. I would imagine yeah. by the end of the day, your eyes would have needed a rest on top of just Definitely. normally needing to rest. Definitely. And um, so, tell me, Valley, what do you love most about what you do? What I love most, what I have loved most about my career is is probably traveling and meeting all sorts of of interesting people. Mm -hmm. You know, I love watching great movies and I love working with exciting people that have done, like there was a lot, I've been able to work with a lot of people whose work I admired, like Milena Cannonero, Colleen Atwood, Victorio Storaro, Dante Spinote, like incredible cinematographers and costume designers and John Slett, different directors that were fabulous. So, and some actors whose work I really admired, Mm -hmm. I got to work with them as directors and as actors. I guess that's what I've liked about my career. 
and also doing something artistic. Yeah. A lot of times you can't do exactly what you want to do, which is a bit of a challenge for, mm-hmm. for me. I can sometimes feel a bit frustrated that I'm just not left with, you know, just go for it kind of thing. Yeah. So that part's a challenge. But I guess it becomes challenging, too, to try to listen to what somebody wants mm-hmm. and give them what they want. Yeah. To be able so to because you're, you're, you're having to look through someone else's vision yeah. for something that like if you've already read a script, you probably visualize it how you visualize it. Mm-hmm. And then when you have a meeting with the director or the production designer or the costume designer, you're having to turn off some of your Pre, preconceived uh, ideas yeah. and look at look through the the vision that, that they're having and you get you have to kind of sort of switch it switch it off or combine the two or mm. just do theirs you know so you know that's interesting too yeah I think there's always a bit of give and take isn't there there's always a bit of compromise and right kind of right. picking and choosing your battles and Um, well I also like it when somebody like someone like Wayne Wang was very specific Mm -hmm. and I and I like that and like Michelle Pfeiffer is very specific Mm -hmm. so it's good then there's no gray areas like you just yeah they they tell you what they want and then you can do it it's not like you're just sort of grabbing at things and thinking is this going to please them are they going to like this are they going to like that yeah you know what I mean I mean, there's so many directions you could go in that it could be quite exhausting to try and figure yeah, out exactly. which, which way you know, to go. You just never find, you're just guessing and guessing because they don't know what they want. So it's actually quite helpful if people have an idea mm. what they want yeah. and then let, let you execute it Yeah, to the best of your ability anyway. Yeah, yeah. And what changes have you noticed in the industry since you started? Like what are some of the bigger bigger changes do you think? Well, I feel it's become more corporate and less artistic. Mm-hmm. I mean, branding over art. Yeah. Instagram likes over artistry. Mm. Speed, speed is everything. Yeah. They don't want to spend time testing and working, working out looks and designing looks, um, not just makeup looks, just all the, all, everything, everything to do with the film. Like when you look at old footage, back before I was even doing makeup, they, you know, they put a lot of time into testing and they did like, you know, in some of Tim Burton's earlier movies, like Mars Attacks, we had a lot of tests on, I know on his Batman movies, they did a lot of testing and they did a lot of, you know, in every area, they don't like doing that so much now. Everything's like, I find that the the movement of movies the movies that I like to work on usually are the ones I don't make any money off on um, are the movies that have a great story and great dialogue. People really aren't interested in that anymore unless you're fortunate enough. Like in the UK and in Europe, they still do a lot of the big period films, which I love. And they do a really good job of it over there. Yeah. They do the makeup and the hair and the costumes and everything and the sets are perfect. Absolutely. But in the U.S., they seem to do more of the action films that are like big video games. Mm. And it seems to be more about sensation and not about words, you know, and about profit. Yeah. I mean, I guess everything is always done for profit. But there used to be people were more interested in people being proud of how 
smart their movie was Mm -hmm. and that how it made people think it might make people change something in their lives or it would show, you know, relationships between people, show family dynamics, show times in history. Yeah. Now, you know, it just seems different. I don't think it'll ever go back to the other way. It seems like they, they take the, they only want to do those films that I like as the real tier, lower budget films. Right. Yeah, I guess, yeah, I guess well, that's where it's coming into the profit thing, isn't it? Because they just want to give the money to the, the films that are going to bring it back to them. Right, and, then, and, and they actually like package people together. Oh, this person's a hot commodity. They've got a lot of Twitter followers, a lot of Instagram followers. They're like, their last movie made, you know, $50 billion. Let's put this person with this person. You know, they don't do like the screen tests that they used to do. And, you know, it's just, it's, it's, you know, it's a different time. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm sure it'll keep evolving into something else, but as yeah, you say, it evolve. may not go back. Go back. Mm. Yeah. It won't go back to the artsy movie. There'll still be arty movies, mm-hmm. but I just don't really like those big video game movies. They're not my thing. Yeah. I, I like working on smaller projects and I mean the the project that you and I just did that that was good because the, the it was well written mm-hmm. it's telling a story like I mean yeah yeah so educating because it's based on history which is cool you know it just sort of I feel like it's sort of lost some of the art mm. it's more about commerce like I said yeah. and it's, um, well there's a lot of people that love them though Valley so that, that's why they're doing so well, well yeah, people, most people yeah <laughs> Most people love them, yeah. you know, that's, that's why they make them like that. And I don't poo poo them to stop making it. It's just, you know, you asked what, what I thought was different yeah. and that that's not my taste, but it's most people's taste. Mm. It's just not mine. So what would you like to see change in the future? Well, I would like them to not lose the art. Yeah. That's all the art of filmmaking and the, the sort of artistic the good scripts, the good stories. Yeah. I'd like that to stay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so what have you worked on recently that we can look out for? I just recently completed with you, the yeah. first lady with Michelle Pfeiffer. And she's playing Betty Ford. So yes. that was awesome. That's I As we were talking about that before, I think what I really enjoyed about reading that script is actually just finding out about Betty Ford because I really didn't being the foreigner that I am and not knowing American first lady history, um, that was really eye-opening to me. And by the end of reading, I thought she was a bit of a rock star. Yeah, totally a rock star. Plus, I thought it was really well written. I mean, that script didn't take me very long to read at all. Mm, That was a good read. It just, you know, it was, was I thought that it was quite well done. Michelle did an incredible job. Yeah, it was very cool. And what did, I think I just watched what you did before that you were on the Kaminsky method before. Oh yeah, that's right. Thanks for reminding me. (laughs) Yes, I did. I looked after Michael Douglas on the Kaminsky method. Yeah, I just. just, final season. Oh, it is the, yeah, it is. I felt like it was the final season. I smashed through it quite quickly because I um, really, I enjoy watching it. So it's easy to watch a couple of episodes at a time. Um, They must have been fun. It was really fun. He was a pleasure to work with. I've known him for about 35 years. We worked on many movies together, but I actually had never done his makeup before. Oh, wow. So the makeup artist wasn't available to do him, so they asked me if I'd look after him. Mm. 
And um, but I already knew him for a long time. So he played the love interest to many of the actresses I worked with on many movies or or I think when I did Kate Hudson, he played her father. Okay. Yeah, he was a pleasure. He's really professional and he's so good at that character. Yeah, it's a great show. Yeah, it it was a really, really fun project to work on. Um, Now, a question that I ask everybody is you're in your trailer, you've got all your bits and pieces, all your tools, your makeup, all that type of stuff, you're set up, and I walk in in the morning and I take one thing away from you. What would that one thing be that would stress you out? And you'd be like, no, Jamie, I can't work without that. My glasses. Your glasses. (laughs) (laughs) Those damn blue screens. (laughs) Yeah. I would definitely need my glasses now, though I never used to. I used to lay on individual lashes like on Joy Luck Club. I'd just go across people, no glasses, just grab them out of the thing, Not no tweezers, just plunk them on. Mm-hmm. Now, I didn't have my glasses. But if you took something that I feel like, it, well, there's for men, one thing I do would need would be nose hair trimmers. Oh, yeah. So if, if I was doing a man and you took my little scissors that I have mm-hmm. that are for trimming the, the nose hair yeah. that, that have protection on the back. So that might be difficult. Okay. For women, one thing that I do use a lot on everybody mm. is my Shuamura eyelash curler. Okay, it's a favorite. So, um, do you have more than one? Do you have a backup in case something happens? Yeah, I do. Oh, good. <laughs> Pleased to hear also, it. So, I have a lot of weird little tools that I've kind of made myself for mm-hmm. when I'm doing eyelashes. That, like, I remember when I worked on Lemony Snicket, my key was just cracking up because I made this tool. It was an old makeup brush that was an old Visiora makeup brush. And I had filed the bottom of the brush to a point, mm-hmm. but it was a perfect point. And the front of the brush where it used to have maybe five or six hairs coming out of it, most of them had dropped off. Mm. I had taken the top of that brush without the hairs and bent it in a certain shape that it, I guess it, it had two little hairs in it and then I, I bent it in a certain shape. Well, it was the most perfect tool for me to use for fake eyebrow applications okay. and little teeny mustache applications. Mm-hmm. So I had a lot of that on Lemony Snicket. Yeah. And, um, I forgot about that movie. Anyway, <laughs> I um, I couldn't find it one day. It disappeared. So I panicked. So everybody in the trailer was looking for this little brush. And it was so, and Timothy Spall, one of the actors, he was helping us look. And he goes, what exactly is it? And when I explained to him, he's like, oh, my God, we're looking for something like that. And I said, but you don't understand. Yeah. Out of all the brushes I have, this is my favorite one. Yeah. For this job, it just helps me so much it makes my job so easy yeah and we eventually found it he's like couldn't you make another one I said I don't know it was the luck of the draw that it got (laughs) bent in such a perfect position and we ended up finding it but that was one of those things where it it cost zero you know most people would have binned it yeah but for me it was the perfect little tool to use for that film I love that. I feel like everybody has one of those items in their kit that they've kind of, it's not really used for what it's intended for and it's been bashed around so much and 
kind of modified slightly to to help you do something and if you lose it you're like wow <laughs> yeah because I made some eyebrow brushes and I made some I have some dental equipment that I actually use for when I'm putting on um, false eyelashes. So I guess it depends on the job. So yeah. whatever, if I was on a job where I was doing a lot of lash stuff mm. and you took away a certain few little products that I've made for that, I'd have a meltdown. Yeah. And then, you know, it just depends on, and like on that particular job, I had all these kind of weird little curly mustaches and extra long eyebrow hairs and things and, and like, that tool was so perfect for it yeah just delicate so little pieces that, yeah it was a stupid little tool but it was perfect for that job <laughs> and and it was just like you know it wasn't one of those things well I can just buy another one yeah so, one of a kind yeah <laughs> and who would you like to hear on the podcast who would I like to hear on the podcast um, uh, there's a couple makeup people that I think that are really, uh, that you haven't interviewed yet that maybe you don't know. One is Richard Dean, who's a New York makeup artist. Okay. He worked on the Cotton Club and on, you know, a lot of different, he worked on Dick Tracy and oh, wow. a lot of different movies. Yeah. And Erwin Kupitz would be a good person to listen to as well. He made all my facial hair and wigs for years. Okay. He's very good at his job and um and then a guy Valdemir Pukromsky who I worked with on Perfume who has done so many fabulous movies in Eastern Europe yeah he's a great makeup and hair designer though he probably would need it might need an interpreter because I don't know how great his English is but Where is he, um, from? he lives in Poland okay but he works in Germany Poland different place. bordering towns on um, former USSR. You know, he works all over the whole of Eastern Europe, Prague. And he worked on Schindler's List and Perfume and a lot of movies that you might have seen, Polish films that are really great. Yeah. One of his movies was up for an Oscar couple years ago he's talented that's awesome yay well Valley, I would like to thank you a thousand times over for spending the time with me today and telling me your journey you're welcome it was enjoyable <laughs> I hope that I you know I hope people find it interesting <laughs> I don't know <laughs> oh lady you're too funny For links to see more about our guests, go to our Instagram at The Last Looks Podcast or our website, thelastlookspodcast.com. If you want to keep up with new episodes being released, be sure to subscribe through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon, Google Play, YouTube, or any podcast streaming platform. And remember, if you're enjoying the show, share it. The Last Looks Podcast would like to thank Brett Stanley and Sabrina Castro. The song Fun Time by DJ Quads. Thanks for listening. Until next time. That's a wrap, people. 